Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind. I'm half of your host, Nicholas Larimer, joined by the other half of your host, Gabriel Krauser. And uh, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm pretty sure there was an episode that came out on the weekend, or was that just some sort of strange fever dream? And uh, yes, there was, because uh, we decided to redo our episode because, well, it was a bit of a mess, that one, to be honest. Um, so we are once again joined for the second time uh, in a episode that's going to go out to the public, and for the third time uh, on the show, Mr. Rian Milan, the great, wise, and wonderful. How are you, Rian? I'm very well, thank you. So, okay, so second run. We're going to, um, well, you, guys, yeah. you guys make the world, so I'm, I'm game. For very good, <laughs> very good. Well, yeah, so we we want to talk about a, a, a somber topic uh, where we probably got carried away a little bit the first round. Um, that's uh, but yes. that's not to say we won't get carried away a little bit again this time. Well, that's um, kind of what we do on the show, to be honest, is get carried away. But yeah, um, so we want to talk about F. W. De Klerk, uh, first vice president of the New South Africa last president of the old South Africa, Nobel Prize winner, etc., who passed away last week and left a message from beyond the grave uh, for South Africa. And the, I suppose uh, we must revisit. The, the initial prompt for reaching out to Rian was the fact that The Spectator, um, described by some as the greatest magazine on earth, uh, published republished a piece that uh, Milan had written in 2010 uh, by way of an obituary for de Klerk uh, after his passing. So what Milan said in 2010 was that he was in a bar or a pub or something, and he nearly, and I quote, murdered an Englishman. Uh, and he then explains that this Englishman was being very snarky. So, is that the only time that anyone has ever put the word mur in, um, uh, in The Spectator? Because that in itself deserves praise. <laughs> Must be sitting in the Great War of 1899 too. Right. As a quote from Paul Kruger, they probably <laughs> they probably did use it back then. Um, but so 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 you know you start and finish you know you finish by saying something like uh, I wanted to murder him and I'll murder anyone who doesn't say cheers to the clerk. Uh, so you know I think it's really it's. It's a masterpiece, and if you if you wouldn't mind just revisiting what it was about that encounter um, that evoked such a visceral response, uh, and the feeling that de Klerk is an icon worth defending, notwithstanding all the complicated stuff. Well, thanks for your kind words. There, it's, I think it's a very best, a very minor masterpiece. What did happen? Well, I'll get. To, I'll get to the. I've got my. <laughs> This 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 Englishman was cheating me that that uh, de Klerk had absolutely no choice that that his forces had been defeated on the ground in battle that he'd lost control of the economy that sanctions were were crippling the economy and he'd been basically fought into a corner and had no choice that he, that uh, that uh, his great leap forward of February 1990 was essentially a uh, a cowardly capitulation because he knew that he faced a He'd already been absolutely defeated, and I felt that this is objectionable on 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 on, on, on several grounds. The, 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 the first would be is that sanctions, yes, I mean that you know that they clearly had an effect on the South African economy, but 
at the time, as I, as, as I recall, is that the calculation of the National Party is in spite of sections, they could creep along for the next 20 years at 3% economic growth um, per, per year. And this would be tolerable. What they wouldn't be able to do was create enough jobs to sub up to sub up the black black misery. Um, and I also think at that, at that stage, it's recently become clear that on in the sort of military field, if you will, this sort of great Cold War battle for control of South Africa, as the clerk had emerged on the winning side. Um, the Russians had pulled out of the conflict and taken their uh, Cuban surrogates with them. Namibia had been. Uh, decolonized, if you would say so. So I, I don't think his hand, his hand, his hand was forced. That I think that, and in, 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 in saying that he was essentially defeated, this this, this Englishman was avoiding taking a look at the extraordinary significance of what he did in February 2019, which was he was an emperor, not at the height of his of his power, but certainly of an un February February power. 1990. Sorry, hey? excuse me, <laughs> an emperor. An emperor, of, a very powerful, small but powerful African empire, voluntary setting in motion process that would lead him and his, his tribe to, uh, to to loss of power. I mean, before the process even started, he said to Ruth Mayer, you, you know that we're the liquidators of this firm. So he decided to take a huge leap into the unknown to follow what the great Afrikaans poet, Breton Breitenbach, so it was was necessary was and that was to give ourselves into the arms of the great African mother and trust that she won't she will not drop us. And that's a bit it might not have been obvious to many people, and a lot of people found the objection objectionable bit. I mean to me this is an act of extraordinary courage. I'm not I'm not sure how many precedents there are in history of of uh, powerful emperors capitulating. Long before the defeat, and doing so voluntarily, and doing so in the hope of creating something better, not just for their enemies, but also for their their own followers. It was an act of great faith and of blind faith in a, in, a, in a future that has unfortunately not come to pass. But that does not allow us to minimise Declare's courage. As as you know, he uh, was a move that uh, split his own tribe right down the middle. He, once he'd embarked on it, embarked on it, it might have proved very difficult for him to win another election, depending exactly at which, which time another whites-only election. So, all things all things considered, I think that he, he needs to be re remembered as a guy who had the courage to do what was necessary in South Africa. I think, which of course makes me, in the eyes of many Afrikaners, a, a hensopper and a etvkoper on the international geldmacht and, and and so forth. But I mean, I suppose if if I if I had been into Clark's shoes, which is wildly unlikely, of course, I probably would have done exactly what he did because it seems to be the only way that we could escape from the nightmare of history that we'd created for ourselves. Hmm. Do you guys agree? <laughs> I agree with that assessment. I think that. I, 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 I think, uh, before getting to the last bit of the piece, there is one question. So, militarily, I've heard from uh, someone who's in the MK, uh, sort of uh, with with a bit of uh, tongue in the cheek, but uh, also an earnest level of disgust looking back, that 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 the um, that the MK was just about the most useless guerrilla movement on the continent. Uh, 
that that militarily the Nats could clearly hold the line. Uh, that's not to say they could maintain peace. KZN uh, was increasingly becoming a bloodbath beyond management, uh, but that in terms of preserving narrowly white interests, uh, the 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 Nats had what it took, uh, especially because they were facing um, a, a relatively disorganized enemy and one that was about to lose um, the the kinds of military support uh, that that Moscow could offer. Um, I do wonder if I wonder about the electoral landscape. Like, okay, it strikes me. Can I just, just address the point, the point that you made there? That I, I know because I've just been reading this book, The Last African Leaders by Hermann Chilomir. And it talks about the military situation in, in November 1989. Uh, I think that for South African for old, old regime <coughs> militarists, the, 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 the great fear was not the ANC. It was that they'd, that they'd wind up facing a sort of unified all-Africa army of foot soldiers supported by swarms of MiGs piloted by East Germans and, and Cubans and Czechoslovaks and fleets of thousands of, of Soviet tanks, etc., that would have been very difficult for them to contain because, and these guys were rational guys. When when the Berlin Wall came down in November 1989, that, at a stroke, removed that fear. Um, and you, they were left looking at the ANC, and I, th I think that it seems to be common cause that, uh, that the ANC was quite heavily infiltrated by people who were agents for the Boers. And so the numbers that Khedemi uh, cites is that the NC had 12,000 uh, trained guerrillas, of whom 6,000 were infiltrated into South Africa over, the, over that time span, uh, in, in the, say, in the course of the 1980s. Um, of those, they, the 50% are said to simply have deserted once they got inside the country. A lot of them had suffered, their morale had been shattered by many years in very unpleasant camps in Angola and later in Uganda and places like that. And uh, many of the rest were either killed or captured by, by the security forces. So without the backing of the Soviet Union, the ANC presented, did not present anything like a credible military threat to, to, to the Boers, a huge political threat. And, and in other words, I think that you know, de Klerk and his advisors were, they were not blind to the fact that demography is destiny and that at that stage, the white population had been sort of more or less stagnant and really grown significantly for decades because of immigration and and because our demographics have come to reflect First those world standards. in Scandinavia that you know yeah. people were not procreating in the way that they once had done. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I agree with that. Just by the by, that assessment had come because I was discussing a piece by James Myberg. Um, of Politics Web, where he detailed some of the uh, sort of ANC's uh, language in the late 80s and early 90s, declaring farmers, all farms, to basically be uh, uh, military locations. So they were like, you know, we won't go for civilian locations, but we will take out military targets. And uh, farms are qualified as that uh, sometimes. So there were landmines laid out on farms. And, and Myberg kind of lists the recorded deaths. And there aren't many, but they're overwhelmingly of black farm workers uh, driving around on tractors and stuff. So there's just, you know, I, I mentioned this detail to, to yeah. 
an old MK, MK guy and he was like, yeah, this is shameful. This was really, you know, it's just a, another sign of how we can disorganize and, um, and embarrassing really, uh, to put it mildly, some of the, some of the MK's exploits were, mm. and, and, uh, you know, it's a full on tragedy for the person who dies, but from a, from a hard nosed mm. kind of general's perspective, that's not posing, uh, but, an existential but then, threat. But then again, the anti came carrying an AK-47 in one hand and something else in the other hand, it was ultimately a far more powerful weapon. It was, it was very shrewd understanding of the power of propaganda a shrewd understanding of the let's say the perceived moral advantages of having an enemy like apartheid which is you know <laughs> everyone in the world hated us everyone in the world gave the anti every benefit of the doubt and i guess the third hand grenade that they carried was the willingness to engage in duplicity i think that the clap might have underestimated that i think that you know, all the way through this four years of bloody turmoil leading up to the negotiation, the, the uh, election of 1994. The ANC was simultaneously talking peace and while well, engaging in violence or to some extent fermenting in violence or using violence firstly to eliminate its uh, its its opponents in the black Especially arena. black rivals, yeah. And to, and to reinforce its position with, uh, as the sole authentic representative of the oppressed masses in South Africa, and the ANC's genius was such that it managed eventually to get to get the, I'd say, virtually explicit support in the early nineties, explicit support of of, uh, of the United States, which had been um, had always like sort of refused to be drawn into into backing the ANC while it was perceived to be a puppet of the Soviet, of the Soviet of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, but. Also, Britain and most most European countries. I mean, the, the ANC. You know, I got it. If if only the ANC had uh, shown as, as as much genius in running its various propaganda and political campaigns on the ground as as, as in running the country, as we'd be in a much better position than we are today. <laughs> so, so perhaps that's that's why this under they underestimated the ANC, or if 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 indeed de Klerk did underestimate the ANC. I mean. Uh, so they've been completely incapable of running a proper insurgency. The Soviet Union, which is assumed to basically be the brains of the operation, falls over. And you kind of think, well, I mean, how dangerous can these dudes really be? Uh, perhaps yeah. that's why that mistake was so easy to make. Mr. Lorem, that's a very good point that you bring up. I do think that there was, I think that, clearly me is certainly of the opinion that, uh, that uh, Duclerc and the people around him underestimated the the cunning and resourcefulness of of, of the ANC, and he, he makes he makes a claim that you know the clerk went into the election accepting that there was going to be a form of majority rule, but looking for some sort of constitutional protections for group rights or racial minorities, if if you will, and sort of ways of like making for formulating a constitution that could only be changed by a 70% majority and support all sorts of things that his party might have been able to do. But Hedemann makes, makes the position that they never had, they never formulated any backup positions, that they went into those negotiations which went nowhere until... Until it was so late in the day that they capitulated on every demand. And then, and, and then that, that time is like once, 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 I mean, after the record of understanding of 1992, which let's just recap the, 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 
And the clerk was standing firm at Kudkudos. He wasn't prepared to make the sort of concessions the ANC were expecting to do. So my reading of the history there, which is like sort of somewhat contra contra controversial, but I'll defend it if you'd like to, is it, is it the ANC always claimed that they, that they had to break away from these negotiations because de Klerk was murdering their people. And the triggering event was, of course, the Boipatong massacre of July 1992, in which 50-odd people lost their lives. And this is widely attributed in another genius propaganda campaign is that, is that there was massive involvement in whites, by white special forces characters and, you know, the Caspers ferrying the Encarta warriors into battle. And I mean, every, everything except uh, sort of South African Navy submarines coming up the Dongas. So. <laughs> and, you know, I think that there was, there was once again, the whole, the whole world except arguably me and Dennis Beckett didn't buy that, but I mean, it, it, it put the clerk onto the defensive because here he was being charged with being being a murderer, and his attempts to attend the funeral of the Boipatong was sort of rebuffed, and he was chased out of there in ignominious fashion by a mob of stone throwing ANC supporters. And anyway, he seems to have lost his nerve at that at that stage and made concessions to the ANC that effectively turned what left what is left of the ne ne negotiations into bilateral talks between. The National Party and, and the African National Congress, and excluding um, Butelezi among others. Yeah. You know, I mean, Butelezi had been a thorn in Pretoria's side. I don't know if you guys know this, but I mean, from the 70s onward, they've been trying to overthrow him by manipulating the Sudu royal house politics and various other things and replacing him with a more pliable Bantustan leader who wouldn't take the position he did. I'm not going to discuss the future with you guys until you let Nelson Mandela out of prison mm. and ban the, ban the ANC. He was his reward for that is I mean he would put less to something I think that would have been incredibly important for South Africa, which is federalism. You know, if mm -hmm. we had a strongly federal constitution that conferred real powers on provincial governments, we could have had a thousand schools of thought contending in this country. And the Zapa government in Eastern Cape, EFF in Pumalanga, and sort of NPDP, whatever in the Western Cape, and we could have tried to see which systems work work best. And I think that <laughs> We would have all learned lessons from those things. So, and thank you. So, so my my one fear about that scenario is that we would have turned into. You talked about the clerk sort of thinking of maybe having uh, these like rights for minorities, that kind of thing. I don't know. You know, twenty percent of parliament reserved for whites, something like that. I don't know if that was what the specifics were on the table, but that's the kind of thing someone could imagine. And there are some countries that have done settlements like that. I think Fiji is one and yeah. uh, Lebanon's another and I must say I really don't like those uh, and I think Lebanon's a really great example of how you know that was a political compromise made to sort of end the civil war there um, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly whole, whole because because, because the Clarkinists and his guys they were sort of conservative Afrikaners I don't think they understand, understood how much those claims were perceived to be offensive or simply stupid in, in, the, in the ideas, in the eyes, especially right. of, of anyone except an Afrikaans speaking South African, really, that they... So, so um, what, I mean, what's happened they, in, in Lebanon is that the system just became really corrupt and frozen and sclerotic. Uh, and all of it was entrench all of these sort of barriers between, you know, Christians, Shias, Druze, whatever. And uh, now they... They're, they're going through major political turmoil because people are getting fed up with the system and saying, you know, this basically prevents yeah. us from being able to ever get out of this mess. And I think that if we had had a settlement like that, that's exactly where South Africa would be. 
the uh, but but like you said, you know, put Lesip in there, maybe it would have taken a less racial enclave aspect and a more well, federalist. Yeah, aspect. and 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 that distinction that is so the distinction, right? In a federal system, you've got geography defining the borders, and so you know you can migrate in or migrate out of different states, and if some state is going, you know, if the Western Cape, for example has more or less the same power trajectory that it ended up having in terms of parties involved. But instead of having the very limited powers that provinces have, also had the ability to have its own police force, its own education budget run in its own way, uh, its own health budget, its own housing budget, could have implemented some good IRR ideas like you know tax-funded vouchers and so on. Uh, then I think by now the Cape Flats are so day and night different to the townships in in rural Eastern Cape and to uh, you know a lot of what's going on in Gauteng that it's it's that we learn the lesson that this really does work much better. Well, but their geography yeah. is different to 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 demography because geography is not destiny. People can move around, whereas demography, like you know, you get this many the 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 the, the idea of minority rights just seems like the idea of the tricameral parliament taken yeah, to the or, next step. Or a variant of that. I mean, just the optics is that, you know, the, the club's entire negotiating team at the Hortuskir meeting and just a few months after he freed Mandela, consists entirely of like sort of elderly white males like me, <laughs> the least popular people on the planet, whereas Whereas the ANC showed up with this sort of, you know, licorice, all sorts of diversity. There were, there were some women, there were, there were all, all racial minorities were represented by at least one person. But I think that Nicholas's remarks, as he was talking about that sort of the power sharing, the group rights phase of, 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 of those negotiations, which I think were inadvisable, whereas federalism is not necessarily, it's, it's not necessarily a, raci a racially based idea. Hmm. It's simply a, a great trend. Well, it's often attacked as one, uh, but detractors to try to make out federalism as being some kind of uh, hidden attempt of um, to 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 basically hide the fact that you've got you know some sort of racial segregation going on and a part of that is because of course in the US uh, federalism does have an association justifiably so with sort of you know Jim Crow and racial discrimination in the south uh, and that that way of looking and at federalism, that and yeah. slavery right that that uh, black mark on on federalism has been used to bash it ever since, uh, even when it's completely not fair. Well, I'm not sure that's directly comparable to, to the situation in the, in the Western Cape, because so long as you continue to hold elections, if uh, given the fact that the majority of people who live in this, in this, in this province are so-called coloreds who generally speak Afrikaans and so forth, the National Party would have been punished really severely for what it's doing. Although, but I, do you know what the great tragedy? I live in the Western Cape now. I live in the in the Karoo, and the great tragedy of the of this sham federalism that we've got in South Africa is that people don't understand what the limitations of a provincial government are. That they don't they, they think that since the West DA is in power in the Western Cape, that it can transform all the things that make them unhappy in their lives, from availability of housing to poor policing on the Cape Flats and so forth. And this message that because the DA likes to prose as capable and, and omnipotent to some extent, 
they they uh, <clears throat> it hasn't it doesn't seem to go to pains to make clear how limited their power their powers really are. I mean, what they, you've got some say over uh, over hospitals and education, but over the critical the critical things that alter the destiny of people, like sort of say for building houses, new housing, and from Vexdorp, is the money has to come eventually from the federal government. And if the federal government doesn't want to give it to a DA government, says that there, there we are, and nothing happens. Mm. But mm. Anyway. And the police. I mean, come on, let's look at the. Operation Impi, you know, you've got South African police in Pretoria selling guns to gangsters in the Cape Flats. You've got uh, police in the Western Cape trying to investigate that, and then you get them fired by the police commissioner, first laterally transferred, then mm. there's a bit of a scandal about it. Jacques Poe does a good job there. Then they get reinstalled, and then they get removed again, one of them for saying in a tweet the F word or something absurd. You know, this is like the guy on the cusp of doing some of the most important police work in the country. And didn't he use, use the M word, which is mood? I think he used the word mood. That's exactly right. He said his, his <laughs> colleague, very was very was saying about his colleague going to court. Uh, you know, I'm going to murder his opponents or something. Oh, I hope you murder them in court. And then this yeah. was taken to be a literal threat of violence. And so he was removed as the, ah, it's very, it's very, very terrible. Um, Okay, but let's take a step back to the cloak. I don't want to. I don't want to. Rihanna, I want to pose this to you. So, I, I'd, I'd love to dwell on Boy Patong because that really is some of the most important journalism uh, ever to be sort of ignored by those in power um, to 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 come out of this country. So, I wonder. I wonder if if. If, if so, part of the problem is that the ANC is just so good at running the New York Times, and you know our local journalists are kind of following what they're following, and so the ANC says, you know, this is third force, and 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 so many people go along with it that that de Klerk is kind of painted into a corner. But in terms of um, codifying the negotiations in such a way that it's really between the National Party and the African National Congress, and in this way sidelining the IFP, who have the very good idea of federalism who have the best track record going from the seventies in terms of uh, so many different things. I wonder whether part of the issue there wasn't also that the national party was afraid of dropping into third place or dropping below 20% and thus not getting uh, de Klerk the, the position of vice presidency. And this is a harsh criticism of de Klerk and I'm not sure of it. I'm asking, do you think that part of his mistake was, being so fixated on making sure that he becomes deputy president, that he makes the same eventually move as the ANC, not in nearly the same brutal fashion, but the same move of saying, you know what, this is really a fight for, 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 for who comes second uh, and we'll exercise our power in a way that sidelines the IFP so that the NP uh, can secure that second place uh, because that's ultimately more important than uh, sort of, winning the, the, the big argument. Well, you know, me points out that at the start of those negotiations, when de Klerk was still in his group rights mode, is he envisaged a, a three-man rotating presidency in which uh, the three leading parties are Mandela, three the leaders of the three biggest parties, which would be himself, Mandela, and Butelezi, mm. would, uh, would occupy the president's chair from time to time. That got, that got shut like down. Switzerland. <laughs> I don't, I don't, well, but he seems to know, ship from that. So that's like the starting place. But I'm saying somewhere between that yeah. and 93, he seems to, or 90 earlier even, he seems to kind of 
uh, write the IFP out of the negotiations to the point where the IFP eventually is so frustrated it doesn't want to participate in the elections and they have to get like Shaka Day as a public holiday and whatever to get yeah. the stickers pl plastered onto the ballots. But it seems to me that here, here's, the, here's the irony that I'm trying to draw out. So I have had, I have like the only dinner parties I've been shouted out of in the last couple of years uh, have been where I have said to, and you know these people, Rian, but I won't say their names, where I've said to people that I have a lot of sympathy for the IFP, uh, you know, running from the 1970s through 1994. And and just for our listeners, I might have probably said this before, but uh, as a teenager doing my matric final project, I tried to prove Rian Malan wrong uh, because I was a naughty little brat. And, uh, you know, I, I knew very well uh, as a family friend that Rian was famous for for covering Boy Patong and debunking so many of the third force myths there. And so I decided to do some archival research and I listened to the the testimony at the TRC of, of, of you know, so many people, but like a mother who's like hiding underneath her, her thin little mattress and uh, being stabbed from above and stabbed from the side and she's clutching her three little children to her breast and uh you know two of them are stabbed to death and the third one is crushed skull against the wall and she goes and recovers in the bathtub uh you know the, the, the ifp clearly did some terrible things but there well, the, 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 there's a lot of room for sympathy and i get shouted on here's why i get shouted on if you have a nice thing to say about the ifp you're basically saying that you liked apartheid because the ifp and the nats were in cahoots and they're one and the same thing. The one is just the puppet of the other. And uh, and so you can't say a nice thing about either. That's one perception. But when I look back, reading over Heliomir, for example, I, I, I just see like these moments where the Nats seem to spurn the IFP, eject them from negotiations, reject their basic good ideas. and 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 that seems to be... Like if there's one play that that looking back just seems like consistently a bad move, it's that the clerk wasn't working more closely and intelligently with Butelezi. Like they, no. actually, it's the opposite of the general impression. The the the, the, the IFP and the Nets were way too far apart. That's a very good, very good point. I mean, I I, I think that that is the. Butlesi would certainly say that the record of understanding of 1992 was a stab in the back from the clerk. After after all these years of being, shall we say, the loyal opposition in in in, in inside South Africa of like sort of opposing apartheid in the manner that he did, but absolutely refusing to cooperate with with uh, Pretoria in, in in other respects, that he felt he deserved to be taken seriously. He, he, he also yeah, he opposed communism and he opposed apartheid. He was the right guy. Sorry. Yes, and, and I, uh, exactly why the clerk did that is, is difficult for me, but it could be that you know members of his negotiating team, especially Leon Vessels and, 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 and Rolf Mayer, had become really close to some of, you know, Rolf Mayer and Sir Ramaphosa were famous, famously, you know, they were best friends. Fly fishing. And salt, fly fishing, salt, single malt whiskies, and they got philosophically long, re really fine. So I think that, that, was, that was a factor in it. And, but the question that you asked is, is, is was the clerk's action driven by ego? I can't say that, but let, let's say that he imagined because he was such a great man and because he set South Africa on this path to a new future 
and because so many people who are black, you know, he, he, he polled pretty well among black people. People, even if they weren't intended to vote for Mandela, they, they still, they liked him they, and they trusted mm. him. Mm. That he would be, he would ex exercise a great deal of authority in the government of national, national unity that was supposed to exist for the first five years. You'd soon first find that he was being dismissed and belittled at, 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 um, at all points being told by Mandela to sit down and shut up in, in cabinet meetings. He didn't take at all well to that. I mean, if, if we were to believe uh, Zelda, Zelda Mandela's PA, okay. yeah. is that is the could be quite rude. He did seem to feel that he was entitled to more, much more respect than he was given, and he didn't handle that very well. As you, you'll remember, there were various things where he Mandela arguing in public and refusing to shake each other's hands and outside a restaurant somewhere. Anyway, strong words. And shortly after that, he pulled out of the government of national unity. And that was the end of the glorious national party machine after, I mean, it did not. So if we're that. doing a little bit of sort of retrospective armchair psychology, I recall the line by, I think, Sylvia Plath, uh, that women are like tennis balls. Uh, the harder you hit them, the faster they bounce back. A terrible line about sadistic dependent relationships. Uh, is the suggestion here a little bit maybe that because Mandela is slapping de Klerk in the face so hard, uh, de Klerk feels a want of respect and so grows a kind of dependent attachment to Mandela, like to do whatever he can to get Mandela to say something good about him in public? Um, is that a? Am, am I venturing too far into the murky I'm, waters of? I think I, I, just my, my 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 sense of the thing is is that the clock wasn't capable of being obsequious. He was even people who didn't, who didn't like him and to they considered this one thing. It's like when when I, when I call the clock a democrat, I'm talking about within the bizarre context of of a whites only democracy in South Africa. But like many of his pre predecessors, including my namesake, Dr. D.F. Maloney, actually believed in democracy. He believed mm. that every man, with the exception of everyone else, that every <laughs> that every white person should be allowed to vote. And in and in, and in, in accordance with the laws laid down by God, that uh, individuals, the rights of individuals, are sacrosanct and should be protected by law, and they should all have the right to speak out on on their own behalf, um, whenever that was called for. Um, where is it? Okay. Yeah. I think it's it's it's, it's a might have thought of, of himself as this clean Mandela was an icon who transcended. I mean, he, you know, he was a colossus that bestrode the entire planet. So, you know, a guy who mm. you, that, that he thought by virtue of his expertise and governance and his years of sitting in cabinets and doing the job properly is like you know reading all the briefing papers handed to you by the director generals and trying to make sort of decisions about advanced technocratic stuff, is that he would be able to use that knowledge and background to influence the course of the government. If, if rapidly found that that wasn't the case. Um, oh. And when he did, are we, are we to say you should have put up with this? I mean, possibly. Stayed the course of the five years of the government and national unity didn't make any difference. I, I'm not sure. There, I think that I think I think well, the clear is, is the is that the the events of 1992 were critical. They didn't have a a fallback in position. They hadn't wholeheartedly embraced the idea of federalism. Studied it. They they didn't. They kept their allies or their potential allies at at at, at arm's length. 
that would be Butlezi and and handful of other and homeland leaders who, who might have who might have supported them and and sort of stood idly by while while Mandela seduced or bullied them into submission. So when the day came, anyway, author of this book that you guys know. Yes, I just want to say, Rian is holding up his copy of The Last Afrikaner Leaders, and I'm holding up my copy of The Last Afrikaner Leaders. Yeah, in case for our listeners, the, Herman Khilomir was the president of the Institute of Race Relations for a time, and a great South African historian. Sorry, I don't have a copy, so I'm not holding up anything. Yeah, Nicholas is actually the closest thing to an historian in this podcast. <laughs> is not the greatest admirer of de Klerk. He, he, he feels that there might have been a better outcome if he'd had a more sort of leader, a guy who refused all the way. I mean, having made a great leap forward. The quantum leap. The quantum leap forward and, and sort of, you know, at least got a foothold on the, moral, on the moral high ground that he could have then taken the position taken several positions more strongly and made the ANC fought, fight much harder. I'd, in this regard, I draw you your attention to Patty Valtmeyer's, I think, very good book. She was a financial American who worked for the Financial Times here in that period. She wrote a book about the transition in South Africa, and she states towards the end of it that when, when the game was finally over and everyone went home to prepare for the election on April, April 27, is that the ANC guys like Joe Slovin Company couldn't believe what they'd been managed to acquire. It was like that, they, that they'd actually got sort of majority rule with very, very limited protections for, uh, you know, for um, you know, this, what, the, this, this language in the constitution that protected property rights, but there was, there were always also all the, what are the chapter nine clauses that, that entitled people to yeah, the progressive yeah, rights, the strange phrasing of the property rights, the sort of clause about yes. representativity within the civil service and the way that that reads with non-racialism opens the door to what's happening now with the Employment yeah, Equity Act imposing quotas on the private sector. Even, I mean, you know, the clerk had some sort of obligation to all the soldiers and policemen who who, who uh, had, had served the National Party for the, pre the pre previous 50 years, and the, the ANC was completely willing to consider a, bl a blanket amnesty, but they somehow forgot to negotiate it, just like sort of nobody was paying attention to it. And, and in the rush is that they sort of wind up in the very last days of the, what is the, the transitional executive council? They, what they, uh... anyway, there's, there's... So, so I think... It, let me let me put a line to you from from Gilliamier, which I think we're pushing against in a way. So Gilliamier quotes quotes Machiavelli, um, which is I think something people don't do nearly enough. Um, and I don't speak Italian, so I'm going to paraphrase here. But Machiavelli says there are only two sources of power. One is nature, and by nature he really means sort of raw the state of nature, uh, raw chaotic violence. And the other is the law, you know, the vote or whatever it might be. The rules in the time of, mono of monarchy, of, of, uh, of, of, of inheritance and so on. So Machiavelli says a stupid person is only going to draw power from one source or another. And so he was very critical of the prince that, uh, you know, exerts cruel violence to intimidate his enemies, uh, but then doesn't stick by his own laws. Uh, because he says this just plants the seeds of a revolution that will ultimately be your undoing. It's going to have bad economic effects, which are going to translate into disgruntlement, which is going to translate to palace intrigue. And then you have to 
watch every cup of wine that you drink for terrible poisons and so on. The alternative is only to draw your source of power from the law to not, uh, you know, he, he very much thought one should be negotiating with a with an uh, uh, AK-47 in one hand and a pen in the other, in a sense. But then he sub, so he's, he says you've got to attend to both. But then he drills down further and says when it comes to our beastly power, there are two kinds of beast. There is the lion. And the lion is very strong and very courageous and very good at chasing away the wolves. But the lion will fall into a trap because it's a bit doff. And then there is the fox, which is very clever and will see the trap coming and will spring the trap with a little twig. And once it's sprung, will then go and grab the little berries or whatever was lying there uh, unharmed. But the, the fox is no good at chasing away the wolves. And surprisingly, the criticism that he levels against a clerk, and, and this is all within the context of generally saying to clerk, as you, as you put even better, you know, he's an emperor who, who gave away power uh, without being forced to give it away. Uh, February 2, 1990 is, is a moment really that stands out in history. Um, but that after that, his problem is surprisingly not so much that he lacks the aptitude of the lawyer. He was a legal man. Uh, he'd been a lawyer before he became a legislator. He understood how to work that stuff. Not so much that he lacked the, the cunning of the fox. Uh, there seems to be some good understanding of how he's being played and trying to counterplay that. Um, but that he lacks the courage of the lion, uh, that he, 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 he's not really willing to stand on principle and be hardahat and say, okay, you know what, this is not working out. And so we're going to terminate this on our terms. And if you want to come back to the negotiating table, here are our preconditions. Um, instead he's, he sort of says, okay, the ANC can come in, you know, the MK can come in and you don't have to un disarm and you don't have to disband the people's courts and you don't have to disband the defense units and you don't have to call for, uh, actual accountability, you know, in the final debate, um, between Nelson Mandela and F.W. de Klerk on the eve of the 1994 elections, there's this terrible asymmetry where I rewatched it. I've watched it three times in my life. And the last time I felt the strangest because there you have de Klerk saying time and again, you know, we had um, gun runners, we had death squads, we had bad things, but we've held people to account. We've had corruption, but we've held people to account. And then he tries flipping the, the question back to Mandela, like, you know, basically name me one ANC cater that, or one MK general or soldier or whatever that you guys have held to account for for breaking the rules. Um, and and Mandela has no answer to that. He just flips back by saying de Klerk's a liar uh, because there are terrible things that apartheid's done. But de Klerk's already acknowledged that. Mm. So he, 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 in the final debate, seems to start getting to this sort of lionish position of saying, you know what, I'm going to defend the ground. But there's something... There's something so counterintuitive about that judgment because it does seem like the clerk is outfoxed rather than out bullied. And I think what what you've just described is 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 maybe getting to the point. Anthea Jeffrey, our colleague, said the clerk couldn't do any better than he did because he realized that apartheid was immoral, and that made a certain kind of defense or 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 procrastination or elongation of the process just impossible to defend. But it sounds like what he missed out on was a crystal clear moral vision of what would be better, something better to fight for. 
and to draw the moral authority and from there the the courage to use force where necessary and and really force where necessary means you know holding the status quo until the ANC holds some of its generals to account he doesn't have that power because he doesn't have a clear vision of what is the better thing to replace apartheid with he's got a general idea one man one vote um you know some some way of protecting people against majoritarian domination but he doesn't have he doesn't have the crystalline ideas of federalism of a constitution that just all the constitution has to do to de defend whites and indians and colored people from black majoritarian uh national democratic revolution which was the official ANC policy for much of its lifespan. You don't have to have group rights. You just to have proper individual rights. If you just have proper property rights, not with a strange wording of Section 25, uh, if you have proper um, uh, uh, negative rights, uh, then surely to goodness, you know, the best lessons of, of political economy since Machiavelli teach us that that is that that's the best safeguard and 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 the best way to get a, a reason responsive government through 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 shifts in balance of, of of power through the vote is through federalism so he doesn't have that crystal clear idea of federalism uh, an individual classically liberal um uh constitution and a democratic framework within that and and may and i'm not saying this as uh uh like you know he came from if you think about where he grew up and where he went to university and what kind of attorney work he was doing and and his time as a legislator and a cabinet member with the national party like he came a long way towards seeing what the best defense is against majoritarian domination but he didn't seem to get there fast enough for that for that goal to be his source of moral authority. Instead, he kind of... So, so to adapt a, a quote from uh, that was originally said, I think, about Mitt Romney, is that uh, he spoke liberalism like a second language. So good. So good. But if it, like... <laughs> it's, it's a, but think, and that's no diss that, on people with thick accents. But I think that that's, you know... Is that too harsh? Duclerc's de, de, de uh, de great sort of change of course in, in the middle of towards the end of 1992 with a record of understanding which heralded the onset of essentially bilateral negotiations just between his party and the ANC. I mean, I'd, I'd agree with, I'm repeating myself now, I can't remember exactly how you, you phrase it, but he, he, he didn't have a vision beyond that point. Once he'd abandoned these ideas of, of, of group rights and group protections and special representation in the Senate for the racial minorities, etc. Et, et Once he'd, he'd abandoned that, he seemed to have nothing else to guide him other than the moral compass that is that he seems to have, listen, you must offer, Afrikaners are serious. My father was an Afrikaner nationalist. He grew up in Kalfinia. His father was a sup and uh, you could sort of quote Shakespeare and hum, hum handle. My father went to Stellenbosch University in 1939 and got swept up in the, he joined the Osvar Brandfach that was going to declare war in the British Empire and exact vengeance for uh, for the concentration camps of 1899 to 1902, etc. And from, from that point on, my father was a really, a really thoughtful guy. 
And his best friend was a guy called Havmi Hendricks, who was a thoughtful guy who wrote editorials for Dachbrek or Landstam, one of the Afrikaans dailies in, uh, in Johannesburg. And we used to get together every Friday night. They'd come to us to Bri, or else we'd go to them and Bri. And my, and my father and Harry would sit there, sort of smoking their, their Peter Stuyvesant and drinking one or two brandy of Coke's always in moderation and, and like sort of agonizing about what, why it was that the outside world and the English newspapers didn't accept it, that they were genuinely looking for a solution to the problems of multicultural, of a, a multicultural, multiracial country that, you know, for, for an enduring solution. It's like, my father walked in lockstep with the National Party until 1989 when the Freie Wirtblatt published a story called Blutspurt von die SRP which they find was the true confessions of Dirk Kutzier about how he and, and his buddies at Flakplas had done a lot of drinking and smoking dacha and, and killing people, sometimes because they'd been crossed in diamond deals and sometimes for, for political reasons. And there it was unequivocally, and my father just couldn't conceive the, this godly party of his. Who they at one stage believed in the sixties that God had had, had a close look at apartheid and ruled it was it was, you know it was in the, within fell within the limits of his tolerance. Mm. So I mean, if if you, I think that Clark might very well, even though he was a lawyer and possibly a cynic, that he, he had vestiges of that himself, and he, and he lost them, which means that. Sorry for talking so much, but let's look at his posthumous message to us from the grave. You talk about Machiavelli's distinction between the beasts and, and the law, the two, two ways of fighting. At the end of the day, when he looked back on his career, all he had to do is he, all he rested on was the law. This is what we gave you, this constitution that, for which we're so proud of, which like governs the rules of interactions between us, etc. I beg of you to consider this thing. Do not break it. Do not throw it away because it's the only thing that can really offer us some sort of future. And that was, in, in a way, kind of despairing. I was, I was sort of expecting him when it, when it became clear that this shrunken and dying vestige of the fat, jovial man, politician that, that he'd once been, that he was going to speak to us from beyond the grave. I thought he was going to issue a series of really dire warnings about the present situation in which we find, I find, we found ourselves, where we are grasping with bare fingernails from a, over a huge abyss. I mean, just if ESCOM collapses without power, there is no hope of progress for anyone in this country. The, opposite, mm -hmm. the black masses, their children. You know, we won't have a fourth industrial revolution. We won't have the internet. We won't have any, anything. So we're, we're in a really powerless position. Instead, he didn't have so much that to say. He wanted first to know that he was sincere in his regrets about apartheid, and secondly, please bear our. Don't break this constitution. It's all we have to hold against the darkness. Um, mm. So, what does that make him? Man, it makes him a lawyer, a, a man of the law in uh, in Machiavelli's Machiavelli's uh, analysis of the situation. I think so. Yeah, I mean, I think I do feel like there was the sentence where he said, we need to align our principles of non-racialism and non-discrimination with our need to address the past and the issue of affirmative action. And that's more or less a direct quote. I've sort of rewritten it enough times that I think I've committed it to memory. And I think that it's a somewhat ambiguous phrase, but it's a really good phrase because right now they're not aligned. Right now, South Africa is like a car whose front tires are pointing squint. 
and it's 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 uh, grinding the rubber into shreds, and from there the wheel bearings, and from there the whole thing comes to a crash. And what's ambiguous about the phrase is, you know, well, so do you need to bring non-racialism in line with affirmative action? So that non-racialism just means, uh, as 60% of respondents in 2018 said to an IRR survey, that South Africa is a country for blacks and whites must take second place. Is that what non-racialism means? And in a way, that's the, the harshest criticism of de Klerk that I can think of, is that he was like, Look, whites must take second place, but I'm going to be the, I'm going to be the deputy president. But he also, <laughs> well, I mean, American, he literally take the second place, is it? The American novelist Nora Jane Hurston, descendant of, of slaves, she said, "Race consciousness of race is, is is a poison on the tongues of men." The other thing that he could have done is Anthea Jeffrey's idea, the Institute's idea of, of of saying that affirmative action is to the purpose of affirmative action and all rechstel of in all its forms is to is to help the poor to escape from the trap of poverty. Who are the poor in South Africa? We all know who the poor are. It's it's not us three. It's uh, not the end result would have been exactly the same. Is that is that is, is that you have to create spaces in university for poor for the poor children of the poor. It would to have become. been infinitely better. It would have been infinitely better if you choose someone on the basis of poverty versus choosing someone on the basis of how they look. You're in two very different worlds. I think bringing, bringing the alignment means saying, look, every time someone passes, every time someone in a township school uh, gets a matric pass in maths and goes off to university, that's a nail in the coffin of apartheid. Every time mm. someone is chosen on merit to get a promotion, that is a nail in the coffin of apartheid. Every time a young unemployed man turns from a, a kind of self-esteem lacking angry brute into a decent citizen that's adding value to society and paying his taxes that is a nail in the coffin of apartheid and i don't care if that person is black white indian or colored no. that person's a south african paying into the fiscus that mm. money's going to paying compensation so that those who were dispossessed are directly redressed going into paying for HIV medication, mm -hmm. going into paying for the schools that should be educating people, not in to, you know, we live in a country where, where most people, not most people, but most people on Twitter for sure, are like trying to outcompete their parents for who suffered the hardest. You know, I, I, hung, out, I hung out with an aristocrat, uh, son of one of the, the sort of top 25 oil titans in the world in Moscow on Tverskaya, uh, anyway, right next to the Kremlin, you know, and he said, he said, look, I love the work, I love the working class. We were actually drinking Rustinyak, a, a two thousand bottle, dollar bottle of cognac when he admitted this to me. I said, how do you feel about the fact that your father's a billionaire and that you're never going to outcompete him on that front? He said, thank goodness, it's such a working class problem to want to outcompete your parents, you know, for like. I want to I want to give my children a better future than my parents could give me. That's like the slogan of the working class and good for them. But I don't have that. I'm never going to give my children more than my parents gave me. I've got different problems and I'm happy with the problems that I have. And I thought it's like kind of an acerbic, harsh, but ultimately correct assessment of what it is to be working class. And I feel that in my family, very much the most, you know, my working class granny standing on her feet all that day, selling lipstick to rich people, uh, sort of living in a shack half the time. 
Like she has the most esteem in my family because she left her children with much more than, than she had. And her children aim to do the same. That's, that is the working class frame of mind. It's a great frame of mind. It's ridiculous when aristocrats take it on, and which is why I respected my friend for saying he's got different uh, relations with his parents. But that is, that's the frame of mind that could have lifted South Africa out of the doldrums. Look, our parents left us. Our parents struggled through apartheid. Those, those pictures of David Goldblatt of like poor black people falling asleep on their feet in trains at five o'clock in the morning in order to traverse the infinitely long distances from where poor black people were condemned to live to where the work actually was. People, I've sit, sat in a gallery with people who said, ach, shame. And I wanted to murder them the same way you wanted to murder that guy who was dissing the clerk for being forced to do what he did, which he wasn't. I wanted to murder those people for saying, ach, shame about parents that were, 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 were waking up at four o'clock in the morning to make sure that they could earn a crust so that they mm. could put their kids in little school uniforms, put those buttons on their shirt fronts up nice and tight and send them off to hopefully, hopefully get a better life than they had. That's not shame. That is pride. That is the, that is the greatest pride that, that most people can ever achieve. And our, my generation, Nicholas's generation, we could have been a generation that said our parents are amazing, not only for averting civil war, but also for working through apartheid so that we could have school shoes. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to give our children even more than our parents gave us. It can never be the same kind of exponential lift, but we're going to do that little bit extra so that they can get that little bit extra so that we can get that little bit further towards honoring our parents' memories. And instead of that, you've got people who like, like Julius Malem is the ultimate example. Like, you know, a, a flipping struggle hero at seven years old. Yes, I've, Tata Madiba sold us art. The clerk is just a white monopoly capitalist. It's still going on. You guys think, Cesar and Pofu Walsh, my first sleepover buddy. What's his book's title? Apartheid's still happening. You know, he wants to outcompete mm. his parents in terms of how crap their lives are. That's, that's a nightmare. Yeah. And, and I don't think that that nightmare can be chalked up to de Klerk. I think that as much as he didn't aim at the best possible target, the failure of imagination and the failure of like good working class values to transcend, uh, hmm. I think the blame for that what, lies elsewhere. And I must what, say... What, what, Gabriel, what, what could you have done differently? What, what should have been in the Constitution that would have protected us from... Look, I think if there was federalism, okay, so here's a, here's a kind of factual. If there's federalism, then I think South Africa is generally on the right path. It's a rocky road, but until 2007, 2008, we're kind of on the right path. When I'm in high school, 2003 to 2007, uh, GDP in nominal terms doubles. Between 1994 and 2008, the number of people in jobs doubles. South Africa is running a budget surplus. It's rolling out piped water to 12 million people, electricity to 15 million people, brick houses, 13 million are, are built in that time. It's, 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 it's amazing what's happening, okay? There's, uh, as much as there's a little bit of, you know, dissing Matthew's pause for speaking in Afrikaans, Erste Tal to die Mensa, uh, and, uh, you know, kind of laughing into one's shirt sleeve because Nelson Mandela is fascinated by Afrikaans history. Yeah, AIDS denialism. There, you know, there's there's some nasty racial stuff and there's some nasty AIDS stuff. That all notwithstanding, South Africa is on a on a on a clear upward trajectory. 
And it really is the transition to Jacob Zuma uh, together with the ramification of BEE, together with the global financial crisis that gives us this triple threat that South Africa has not yet recovered from and I don't think will recover from until the ANC is voted out of office. So hopefully that happens in 2024. But could we have averted the last double decade? I say yes. I say that if we had been a federal state, by the time you get the transition from Mbeki to Zuma, the Zulus have already figured something out in KZN, which makes the whole Zuma story, I mean, Zuma's really only elevated in the way that he is because he's like the ANC Zulu and he manages to put down unrest nominally. He gets lost in the sort of arms of the sheikhs and so on. That seems very different to me. The ANC Zulu power base seems very different to me in a, in a federal South Africa. In a federal South Africa, I see the Western Cape performing demonstrably and clearly better in tangible ways earlier. I see the contest for power in Gauteng becoming more interesting sooner. And I think that the the balance of forces was relatively close uh, at Polokwane. And I think that if South Africa had been federal, if South Africa had been federal, I think Polokwane doesn't go Zuma's way, maybe. If South Africa had neither been federal and had been clearly non-racial, where the constitution starts out by saying we enshrine non-racialism, and then follows it up by saying representativity in civil service is, right, is not a target. <laughs> yeah, here's what we mean. We mean no affirmative action. You have to appoint people on the merits. Um, then I think then I think Zuma never comes to power. I think <laughs> the worst impulses of Mbeki are somewhat reined in. And even if he makes the same mistake on HIV, he gets replaced by someone who keeps Trevor Manuel in the Ministry of Finance, who keeps... Uh, Brian Malefe out of ESCOM, who keeps that ridiculous clown or, or maybe, out of the SABC. What was his or name? Maybe um, Cloudy. 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 Uh, yeah, Cloudy is. You know, his, I think party got, his party got two seats in Harry Smith, by the way. So I don't know what what people are drinking in Harry. Sorry, Smith. when I said it's ridiculous clown, I meant to say Harry Smith King. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, so I think that's enough. I think that's enough to get it to keep us on a five percent growth path. And I think the road can be rocky. I like to remind people of South Korea because it's like it sounds like South Africa, and because they had a smaller GDP than us in 1989, and today they're the eighth largest economy in the world. They're in the forty thousand dollar per capita club. They have you know uh, the the best shipbuilding and some of the best computer shipbuilding in the world. And fifty years ago, Seoul was flat. Literacy rates were thirty percent. It was a complete flipping nightmare. They didn't have a perfect road. They had to assassinate several leaders mm. in order to get where they got. I think if you've got federalism and proper non-racialism, maybe you have a few presidents being assassinated. Maybe you have some like really uh, dark skeletons in the closet coming out. Maybe the TRC is much more interesting and Rian Malan gets called to speak about how come the third force is not to blame. And, uh, you know, let's look a little bit at like why the, the IFP guys who are saying, look, we really did it. Uh, without orders from 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 Nats and blackface, uh, get taken seriously and get granted amnesty on the basis that they're telling the truth. I think that South Africa is, you know, the soap opera moves along. It's not like the same story being told over and over again. It's it's much more dynamic. At some points, it's much more scary, and maybe that means that the EFF rises up much earlier. But that I think would get us where we want it to be. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know. Okay, but this is, the, the CLAC as a party that used race as its basis for organizations. This, we are us and uh, them and we, and it's not 
in God's scheme of things that we should get along with them. I think he maybe seriously underestimated the power of the idea of race amongst his opponents, who at the time were talking the language of non-racialism. But in practice, as we know, sort of failed cynically to, deployed race whenever they needed to. And I also think, you know, Gabriel, we, we've got to, one thing with old man Mandela never did, he never, he never made it clear to his followers that the revolution was over, to say, this is not going to happen, we're making peace now. There was always this undercurrent, depending on, on who was, he was talking to. to. Mandela, to a certain extent, is that, you know, saying his, his final, the Kimberley Congress of the, Ash, uh, the ANC, which was what, when was that, uh, 1998? Yeah, where he he read the speech like sort of you know it, 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 it sounded like it was written in Moscow in 1962 that recommitted the ANC to all the fundamentals of its struggle and that was basically a sub to the activist caste. And Becky is true as well. I mean, and Becky you know could uh, walk right and talk left or whatever you want to use. He was also a masterful dissembler. Um, but he also never ever made it clear to the masses. Mandela and Becky didn't have the courage to stand up to masses and say, listen, dudes, this revolutionary idea is silly. We stand now in the shadow of dong shopping. The world is starting to get traction. It's like, look what's happening in China. It's like this happiness explosion. They're getting everything right that left, the leftists have, have dreamed about for 150 years and got nowhere, which is to say they're altering the balance, balance of power. They're, they're, they're damaging the power, the economic power of the imperialists and challenging them in every possible way. And look how rich the Chinese are starting to get. They never and how are they doing lived. it by respecting property rights for the first time? And the and the principle the of meritocracy and and, and yeah. hard work it's just it was actually the, the principle of inequality of outcomes that if you're going to unleash human energies, you got to say if you Gabriel are a better tomato farmer than me and you graft harder than I do and I sit on my fucking ass and you come out much richer than me, then I mustn't whine. Yeah, I'm to blame for my relative disadvantage. Yeah. I mean, just that, that idea in, in South Africa that somebody from America called me a while back and wanted to know that how the ideas of uh, Thomas Sowell and his uh, and his, his various progeny in America, you know, black con so-called conservative source or centrists who, who stand up to argue against critical race theory, how they're received in South Africa. And I said, well, they're not received at all because they don't exist. I have... Never in my life seen a Thomas Sowell book on the on the on the shelves of exclusive books or any 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 of those other guys and those. Or as my father calls it, the People's Republic of exclusive books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Okay, so hold on. Let me let me take that idea back. So I do think. So here's a thought. I've we we Nicholas and I have discussed on this podcast before the the Mandela Hindenburg thesis, uh, which is the thesis that. Um, the, the, the 20th century leader that Mandela is unfortunately best compared to is the German general turned hero of World War I, turned chancellor of the Weimar Republic. Turned president. President, I beg your pardon, of the Weimar Republic, uh, and who eventually um, basically allows Hitler through the door. Um, and what was Hindenburg's problem? He was the general of the German army in World War I. The militarily, Germany was completely defeated. And Hindenburg was in the room when it was clear that the Allies were not going to budge on the Treaty of Versailles demands. Firstly, he was there 11th of 11th, uh, two th nine, you know, 1918, which we've just had uh, an anniversary of. Uh, and he refused to make the call. 
he was like, we are going to lose. We cannot win. But then he asked General Gruner to make the call back to the Weimar peeps to say, or to the to whoever was in charge of the government at the time to say, look, we can't do this. And then some guys lean out the window and de declare the, 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 the Kaiser is gone and, and we'll run the negotiations. And then again, the negotiations are really not going well at Versailles. And so they phone through to the generals to say, look, if we have to restart the war, is that going to work? And Hindenburg takes all the information and he's like, it's not going to work. We're not going to win. Uh, but again, he refuses to make the call. And Gruner does. And what happens after that is Hindenburg never denounces this theory. This theory that defines Germany in the 20s and 30s. The, the theory back. is we were stabbed in the back. We would have won on the battlefield, but we were cheated at the negotiating table. That's a theory that keeps the prestige of Hindenburg, who is the most beloved German in the world. It keeps his prestige high because he's the head of the army. They could have won. And it undermines the prestige of the Weimar Republic because they're the stupid politicians who got cheated at the negotiating table. And as long as that idea is unchallenged, and he would be the best to challenge it because he'd say, look, you guys are celebrating me. You're saying I'm so great. I could have won, but I could not have won. Um, he, he was the guy benefiting from this lie more than anyone else. But as long as this lie was around, the soil was rich and wet for the seeds of, of fascism. The, the thought that we need another war, we need to rebuild the Wehrmacht, and then we can destroy Europe and teach the frogs a lesson for trying to humiliate us and trying to blame everything on us. And in the meanwhile, you know, you, when people are desperate and poor and angry, a good way to rally them together is through race politics. Likewise, Mandela allowed the myth to foment that the ANC could have wiped white people off the face of the planet in South Africa, could have, through MK... Uh, you know, blown up every power station and dam and school and, you know, the union buildings and whatever, could have ultimately uh, done like a, a full-on onslaught. But Mandela, through his grace, through his forgiveness, uh, was was willing to, to go for a negotiated peace. And that sounds like a good story until you hear the undercurrent story, which is, no, MK could have won, but we were cheated at the negotiating table. And that's why we didn't get expropriation without compensation to start with. That's why we didn't get a national health insurance. That's why we didn't get a reserve bank that would print money for free. That's why we didn't get all of the things that the ANC initially wanted. And in a way, the thought here is that Mandela, who was quite rude about Becky and some of those tweets have been going around and didn't treat him very fairly, I thought, in that final debate, um, that Mandela, for all his rudeness, paid F.W. de Klerk this grand compliment by not quashing the myth that the revolution could have won through force of arms and by not saying to his supporters as you say Rian, look the revolution is over we wouldn't have won we got a much better deal let's go for it by not saying that he allowed the idea to foment that de clerk was the arch puppet master and this is the idea that hasn't been represented very well in our discussion because this is the idea that 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 is you know the, the shoots fly up through the eff through the radical economic transformation faction of the ANC, which, by the way, is led by Sora Ramaphosa. You know, this is the idea that defines, in so many ways, the mainstream response to Leclerc, that he played an instrumental and fundamental role to securing this constitution. But this constitution needs to be amended because actually Leclerc got more than 
he rightfully deserved to get on the basis of beastly power, mm. as Machiavelli would put it. And actually, he outfoxed Mandela. Mandela pays de Klerk this compliment of saying, you outfoxed me by refusing to say MK was useless. We got the best. We got an even better deal than we possibly could have hoped for. And, and it's this praise that is the most damning of both our Nobel leaders. The fact that both kind of let this idea slide that uh, the negotiations were, 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 were kind of what made it, rather than recognizing that the, ha the hard balance of forces was an important determinant of, of what led us where we were, rather than recognizing that the 1992 yeah, yeah. referendum don't, I mean, don't you think the 1992 referendum is in a way much more impressive than de Klerk could ever be? Like he opens the door in February 2nd, 1990. But when, when a supermajority of white South Africans vote to continue to end apartheid, isn't that what should have given him the wind in his sails to like refocus his energy and be like, well, look, I have this incredible mandate and this wonderful demonstration that my... Pauline moment, my Dam Damascene moment of like once believing in apartheid and now not believing it. I am unexceptional. I am bone average in this country. Most people are with me. And 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 that should open up the imagination to, to mm. say, you know, what is it that most people are really looking for? People have realized that this is wrong. What would be right? What would be better? He doesn't see that. And Mandela doesn't see in after the transition, the... The, the, the necessary cost he has to incur in terms of prestige to say the revolution is not only not over, but we never could have won it. But, you know, also, it could be that uh, de Klerk, being as he was a small town lawyer, is, he simply is that his understanding of, of left wing forces in general was, uh, was, was much too weak. I mean, if we, we were the struggle for South Africa is framed as a struggle for democracy, um, or what uh, in my youth was contemptuously referred to as bourgeois democracy where you you know one person one vote and people enter rival parties battle it out and the electorate gets to turn over the compost from time to time and you know I'd, with with the exception of nelson mandela's 1962 speech speech from the dock which i think was uh, heavily influenced by his, his lawyers and, and tailored uh, to play in the new york times rather than anywhere else from that point so until 1990, it's very, it's very hard to find like anyone in the ANC speaking in favour of bourgeois democracy, or saying even saying that, that we are marching towards Stockholm. <laughs> it was always that we're marching towards Havana, or, or or Moscow, or any of that that system. This isn't an, an idea that De Klerk never really managed to get to work in his uh, in his favour. It's, it's it's partly because you know, for the most most of my life, sort of arguing against communism has, has always had this like, sort of aura of like who's who's McCarthyism in, in America, which hmm. gave the, you know, a bad reputation. And De Klerk didn't seem to be able to formulate a way of addressing that the ANC's lack of commitment to what I understand by democracy. To, Did he should have been sharing a stage with Buttelezi every day, like? <laughs> yes. But, so listen, before before we uh, all these people to uh, your your readers to death, it's like let's just discuss. So it seems that Duclerc is not going to get a state funeral. What do you, mm. you guys make of that, Mr. Lorimer? You haven't said anything for our ages. <laughs> Does he deserve a state funeral? If not, why not? So I like, I like it when you have. I like a bit of ceremony. 
I mean, I don't like being at them and I don't particularly like watching them, but I like them in theory because I think that they hold, they, they, they do really hold a society together. Um, yeah, whether you're a republic up. or a monarchy, it's really good to have these ceremonies and say, I, I, you know, it's like, I think that that's one of the things that shocked me so much about this American transition we've just had is, for example, that Trump didn't go to Biden's inauguration. Uh, and that, that I think does really hurt, particularly in republics, the kind of heart mm. of the matter. And so regardless of what you think of de Klerk, um, and I, I tend to agree with your guys' view of him, but regardless of what you do think of him, you should want him to have a state funeral because he was a deputy president and he was an important figure in South Africa. And uh, the fact that he's not having one really, to me, means that there's, it's a strike at the very heart of our kind of republic. It's, it, it's, it, is, it is actually. It, it, it tells us, in practical terms, Sir Ramaphosa doesn't have cap political capital to squander in this. I think he's in a beleaguered position. But then again, no nonsense, no, nonsense. No, no, no. <laughs> I reject it's, that completely. I, I agree so, with Gabriel. Yeah. This is entirely a, a malicious while pretending to not be. Yeah. Um, but then it's, it's, Cyril is, is thus far is going to qualify that by saying this, that thus far he hasn't been able to dredge up the capital, political capital to do anything of significance. And I was thinking of, of the, all these years of Zondo and all the years, all the stories that we were told of how many people have been arrested since then. As far as I can tell, the only person who figured prominently at Zondo Commission is behind bars at present is Greasy, who is a whistleblower. <laughs> well, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Cyril, I, look, I must say uh, so the impression I got from the news stories, and I suspect you're right to, to, to be skeptical of this, is that the family hadn't insisted on a state funeral, um, possibly Which because I... they feared that the government might tell them no. Which, which, I which I want to make a point about, and this is harsh. I think that, you know, there's the F.W. de Klerk Foundation, the Nelson Mandela Foundation, the Jacob Zuma Foundation, but the Cathrata Foundation. You know, the foundations that matter most are the ones that carry the name of someone who's passed because their job in our society is, again, like a symbolic esteem one, to to keep reminding the body politic what this person meant for our society, what that authority grants, and based on like a fair textual reading, what this person would say in this circumstance. There's a terribly dangerous pattern of really bad foundational work in that sense. Like I think the Nelson Mandela Foundation, as complicated as Nelson Mandela was, he was a great and magnanimous and very interesting man he did turn against communism. He said so at Davos. He showed so in his administration. Uh, he also showed that in his uh, elevation or, or, or consent to the elevation of Tabo and Berkey and the kinds of work that he did. Uh, you know, the Nelson Mandela Foundation really does not carry Mandela's name in a proud and useful fashion. It rather sort of drags it through the mud in the worst possible ways. Uh, never forget it was the organization that brought Black Lives Matter after George Floyd to South Africa in order to say that George <laughs> Floyd was killed for the same reasons Collins Causa was. You know, it, it literally started out the BLM South Africa Neil movement by saying Collins Causa was killed by white supremacy. 
That's how mad the Nelson Mandela Foundation has gotten. Now, I think the FW de Klerk Foundation has done a lot of good work. I really respect uh, a few of the people who work there. But I think they, and the family's even closer and harder to criticize, but I think they have a duty to stand up for the, 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 the meaning and the role that de Klerk played in this country. Uh, so if they were sort of had back channel talks and they got the sense that uh, state funeral might be denied by the government and they preferred to uh, kind of say, well, it's sort of our choice or whatever to avoid the humiliation, I'd say that's a disservice and exactly the same kind of disservice that I was describing in terms of Mandela. It's a disservice where instead of taking the esteem knock, like, okay, it is humiliating. You want to have a funeral. You don't want to be thinking about anything else. Now you're having a funeral in private because the state one was denied. It's kind of embarrassing. Whatever. Well, that embarrassment is so worth taking in order to defend something that's so much more important. Uh, and that's the true meaning of the funeral and the commemoration and the oratory and, and the eulogy. So, 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 so perhaps then we should uh, all, you, on a given hour, we should all pour in, into the streets of people like you and I, and all, all ten of us with, with placards and saying, Hamburgatli comrade, <laughs> declare. Yes. If, if, yes. if people, if so, that's a beautiful if, idea. Uh, <laughs> if people have, if South Africans have proved anything recently, though, it's that they don't really go out for, they, they go out sometimes for little things, but when it comes to the big issues, they tend to not show up in the streets. Well, we've been um, stuck in we're stuck in lockdown, dude. There's like a state of disaster that's just been extended today for the next month. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> yeah. Our deaths are 0. 0.6 per day per million, but uh, no, there were eight yesterday. Per million, dude. Divide eight by 59 million. Eight, eight yesterday. But listen, I want to bring up just in conclusion with you guys. I, I live in a rural backwater. And there's a lot of uh, memes on social media going around among the conservative right-wing Afrikaners who, who viewed uh, de Klerk as a, as a traitor to the fact that his, uh, his estate is uh, $46 million, which is half of 750, 750 million rand. That's an awful lot of money. And, and then they say, yeah, I've seen this. I've held for the Americanos who create almost eight to foot group. So Mm. I'm just saying, is mm. are people in Johannesburg talking about this? Because I, I googled it for its source, and you'll you'll find it. Some, it's a non-source. There is you you will you will find some reference to it. And uh, there, there's a website that is devoted, apparently, to assessing who the richest people in the world are. And on the, on that website, the claim is made without any substantiation that that the clerk has a, a, a fortune had a fortune of three quarters of a billion rand. I mean, is, is it being discussed? Could it could it be true? Gabriel, you go out. I don't. So, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> I on this one. It's, I I have heard. I, it strikes me as implausible. If it is true, it strikes me as more likely than anything that uh, the foundation has some extra money. Like if you if you if you sort of add, but I don't think that's true either because I know a little bit about them. Um, well, I think that. If, if, yeah, Iqbal surveys uh, newspapers in the Cape covered it quite enthusiastically. Oh, yes, that's, they that's also say the, that there's oh. like a pizza, you know, the, what we South Africa's Pizza Gate. There's like some lady had yeah, ten babies kidnapping, and kidnapping. they sold them all for Muti, although the hospital right. has no record of them ever being born. And, and they say stand, that you they stand by the quintuplet, the ten decup. What what what's it? Decuplets. Yeah, decuplets. Oh, yeah, man, that <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. Look, I quite like IOL because I think that um, there well, are they a lot of journalists there. 
they're the only big media company that criticizes Ramaphosa. Yeah. Like in very serious terms, because they're anti, you know, because there's sort of Zuma faction. <laughs> but no one gets it right so all the time. So, but you, but you guys claim that this, so rather like uh, P.W. Butte used to do in the 1980s, that Cyril Ramaphosa is using the threats of, uh, of a return to power by the EFF or the Zuma faction to Rian, reflect some of, the, some of the heat from the he's, to, he's actually to find someone who's so much more popular than the party they represent you you kind of have to go to Russia like Putin's pop, Putin's approval ratings and Ramaphosa's approval ratings are more or less the same and United Russia's approval ratings and the ANC's approval ratings are more or less the same when the president is twice as popular as the party roughly speaking the party's who in their right mind thinks Putin is going to be replaced? Mm. <laughs> and on the numbers, Putin is exactly the same amount of powerful as Ramaphosa is. Mm. And not just in terms of approval ratings, also in terms of, and even more so in terms of the fact that he and Patricia Masepe and their families combined are one of the top five richest families in the country, the only one that's really politically full-blown. They could outspend the next election campaign by an order of magnitude and they wouldn't be able to notice it. It would be chump change. This idea that Ramaphosa is like desperately trying to, you know, he doesn't really like EWC. He really doesn't like the National Democratic Revolution. He's he's just a dip. He's a, he's a reformer who's got both hands tied behind his back. I don't know. Peter Bruce had that idea in 20 whenever. He's given up on it. I, I, never, <laughs> I never liked that idea. I think it I think the only moment it could be true was at Nazrek in 2018. Uh, I no 2017. I think it makes sense for Ramaphosa maybe to say to David Mabuza, "Ah, oh, you know, comrade. Okay, you know, I seem like a bit of a capitalist, but truly deep inside, I'm like a black Marxist. Uh, I will, I will go forward with the revolution. It's just you need me rather than Lamini Zuma to make it work. Maybe there he has to tell the lie." in order to get yeah. power because the because the Nazrik contest is so tight. But since then, uh, Ryan, you were the one who, well, I don't know if I can say this, but someone that you and I both know uh, produced the largest political survey in the country, which not only showed that Ramaphosa was eight times more popular than Lumini Zuma in 2017, also showed that the people amongst whom he was the most popular in the ANC wanted more business-friendly solutions. They were asked, do you want more of the same? Do you want more business-friendly policies? Or do you want, I quote, radical economic transformation? 17% said they wanted radical economic transformation. 20% said they wanted more of the same. And 60% said they wanted more business-friendly solutions. Ramaphosa is popular because most South Africans thought he's a capitalist. He figured out how to make money. He figured out how to do it for himself. Right. He's got elbow grease and like and brains. Politics. Yes. And they thought he was going to be good for business. He was elected against the radical economic transformation unit precisely because he didn't seem to be a radical economic transformation guy. And I think his greatest coup is somehow convincing Branko Brekek and Adrian Bassan and Iqbal Survey and all the other top dogs to say that there are two factions in ANC, the RET guys and the Ramaphosa guys. I mean, that's just a category error. 
Like mm. you, you cannot say, you can say that there's personality versus personality, or you can say there's policy versus policy. But if you want to say that there's a policy disagreement in the, in the ANC, show me one thing Ramaphosa has done to push against radical economic transformation. And I'll show yeah, you 25 is, that he's done for radical economic transformation. If there is a, if there is a, he's policy the leader. That, yeah, yeah. If there is a policy disagreement, it's, uh, between Tito and Bowen and the rest, and the that's speech, why Tito and Bowen is not there anymore. Sorry, Nick. Yeah, it, it might be a bit, uh, you might be to say that it's between the speed and the obviousness of it. So RET wants to do it right now, immediately, super fast, and damn the optics, whereas uh, Ramaphosa believes in doing it with a little bit more subtlety, you know, pretending no, that you don't no, really want it. No, shut No, dude, that that's, that's definitely true. That is definitely he, true. No, dude, the speed, I agree, but the obviousness. Ramaphosa has said, I want expropriation without compensation. Ramaphosa said, coronavirus offers an opportunity for us to achieve but the is that, is that is that what he's telling? Is that what he's telling the businessmen when he goes into a meeting with them? Maybe no, I don't know about the businessmen meetings. I don't know. But we're coming up to one... He knows that that would freak them out. So he says to them, you see, don't worry, don't worry. We're we're working on it. We'll make sure that it doesn't damage the economy. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> okay, okay. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm being too, I'm being too dogmatic. We're coming up to one and a half hours. Yeah. And I think Rian has to go farm in the desert. So okay. my, my, let's move my to three, recommendations. My, my three dogs have just, have, just, have just woken up. I locked them up before they started, but they're just they're up in the <laughs> And looking for hard yes. dogs to attack them, and all and, chaos is going to break loose. Maybe, <laughs> yeah. Any any of our listeners who heard the the, the temporary missing episode uh, will know that hardy dogs and dogs do not make a good combination. <laughs> <laughs> when you're trying to when you're trying to really plumb the depths, I just want to say one last thing about this conversation. I think that myth making and legend building and iconography. And all that good stuff is very important. I think it's I think it's helpful to a country when like most people think Mandela was a saint, De Klerk was a saint, the transition was amazing, it was a miracle, it couldn't have been better. Um, I think that kind of thing can be useful at like a at like a pub level, um, but it's also useful to have the esoteric conversations where you where you look for what could have been better, um, and uh, it's great to do that with. Uh, the sinner of the Karoo. Uh, so by Duncan. Can, can, can I say one last thing in, in his favor? Yeah. You know, after, after, after his political career ended and he, he became the leading figure in the Duclat Foundation, his, his interventions in South Africa were always well, well judged and they always seemed to be based on fairly high principles. He, he, he never indulged, indulged in the many opportunities that South African history has presented him for mudslinging. It's like, you know, to say, you know, look how useless you guys are, etc., etc. He was always. He was always guardedly positive. He, the message was always, guys, if we try, we can do better there. Yeah, no, I think that's oh, a good man. point. Um, yeah. Discipline yeah. takes discipline to do that. Cheeky Brats, like I say, you know, the ANC's destroyed more power generation uh, running ESCOM than it did when it was trying to literally blow up power stations, uh, which is a very funny line. <laughs> <laughs> the clerk was not a very funny guy and I, I, one thing I'd like to resurrect from our first podcast is that we couldn't think of a joke that he'd ever told and I think in a way yeah just reread Hilomi and 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 his and his uh, his autobiography is that they were all completely devoid of humor and cracks and it was always earnest yeah. 
in a way, mm. maybe I'll start recommendations by saying I recommend you visit you Google Rashada Krauser. Krauser spelled the same way my surname is. Uh, F.W. de Klerk, and you'll see a portrait. Unfortunately, in fairly low res. Um, my mom did a series of South African famous people paintings, uh, and she did de Klerk and Mandela and a whole bunch of others. But a portrait of de Klerk, sort of set against the uh, archetypical PNF background, the towering clouds, the little church spire, the orange and blue and white. In the foreground is a, is a little Marika de Klerk, his first wife, dressed so neatly the sunday best little mm. white gloves and a little purse throw a long boat in here mm. go on why ordentlijke fro and she looks so cute and so diminutive and so lovable and the clerk was a man who truly loved his wife and there he is behind her twice as tall with his arm his hand on his heart in gray a gray man with a smile mm. optimistic on his face but no room for a joke and I think ultimately missing a bit of color, uh, but proud and strong and sincere and God-fearing mm. and wanting nothing more than to defend his love, Uranya Blanya Blow. And I think it is a strange, uh, it's a strange mixture. And it's, a, it's an icon. It's, uh, he's an icon. Uh, yeah, there's, anyway, check it out. Uh, Riam, do you have a recommendation or should I go first? You go first. Yeah. So I've recommended this channel before, but I'd like to recommend a specific video on it. And this is on YouTube. Uh, it's from a channel called Kings and Generals. And they just recently did a video called Was Mansa Musa the Wealthiest Person Who Ever Lived? And it's just a, a brief summary of the most famous king of Mali. Um, and it's a delightful little exploration it's only about 14 minutes long of uh, the history of medieval mali which is a part of the world that i'm really fascinated by uh in terms of its medieval history but it is unfortunately not well known to historians because while the people of mali did have writing uh they didn't do a lot of history unfortunately they mostly just did like religious texts and stuff so we have very little to go on about this guy, but uh, what we do know about him is that he had an enormous amount of gold and caused a lot of problems when he went on the pilgrimage to Mecca because he handed out so much gold that it caused inflation. basically hyperinflation. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, even on the way back from his pilgrimage, the effects were becoming apparent that he tried to buy back his own gold. <laughs> to prevent the <laughs> anyway, just very interesting, and it's about a, a an African king who had this interesting impact on the mind of, of of the of the Islamic world, but even of Europe. And in fact, one of the first maps which ever included anything made by Europeans of Sub-Saharan Africa has this picture of what they imagined Mansa Musa to look like, and the bit of the Mansa Musa. Yes, I'm just writing that down. I think I think Mansa is his title actually i'm not sure if it's his name musa is his name but uh yeah like there's a, yeah. there's a weird bit of the story though that the video doesn't actually go into a lot of detail about and this is Mahatma. the fact that his he claims so when he talked to sort of arabic scholars and stuff he claims that his predecessor had gone on a boat to on an expedition to the west so in other words into the atlantic and then he had disappeared now this could be a lie to justify his own takeover of the kingdom uh, but it's still kind of interesting to think that there might have been this sort of uh, Mali-sponsored 
exploration in towards the west and maybe sort of Columbus -esque. <laughs> yeah, sort of <laughs> a failed Columbus-esque from Mali and that's that's a truly fascinating thought I'm, I'm sure, sure that it, you know, it, it probably just ended up in being a massive shipwreck because you know most mm. ships back then did that but still interesting to think about so I, I want to for all those who like you like me whose, whose brains have been battered to pulp by the internet and the streams of, of degraded information we get on the web this this website called Colette, Colette, Q I L L E T T, which offers a stream of pure reason in defense of ideas that I generally regard as liberal. Um, the New York Times might regard them as a force of intellectual dark right or whatever it's called, but I can't recommend them too highly for the intelligent discussions of all the crises that presently beset the world unified by the digital revolution. It's really good. Mm -hmm. Amen. And I'm I'm, mm. I'm going to cheat and do two recommendations. My second is of Rian Malone's Spectator piece on F.W. de Klerk. Um, it's still sort of free on the Spectator site because it's sort of running as an obituary. Um, I wanted to make a little bit of fun of Malone. If you read the second last paragraph, there's a sort of comparison to Israel, which uh, in a cheeky light you can take to be a reductio absurdum. But if you read it technically, um, I think it'll invite you to make a very important comparison to where we might have been isolated uh humiliated without a moral leg to stand on uh in a position much worse to israel 10 years ago um without without an ally or a sort of or a true religious call to 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 defend the 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 the, the sort of status quo ex ante and uh and i think that yeah, it starts and ends with I'm going to clap you if you don't have a nice thing to say about the clerk, which is <laughs> which is maybe the other thing that you can put Al Murio if you don't say cheers, uh, and Hambagatle. Those can be the two placards at the uh, at the street rallies uh, for the clerk's ex officio state funeral. If we get it, let's together. do it. I'll, I'll lead the way in Main Street, from Backstop, and three people and Toyota Bucky's will pass me in the course of an hour. But anyway. I'll be, I'll be in Marvel having a, a, a Jägermeister. That'll be most of the town's population, though. So you'll have, like, so per capita, the biggest impact there. Yes. It could be, yes. <laughs> there we go. Thank you very much for having me on. Yeah, no, thank you very much for coming on. Um, and thank you for coming on a second time after, you know, we, <laughs> we, we messed up parts of the first one. So I really appreciate that. Uh, it's always good to have you on the show, Rian, and you're welcome back whenever you want. Okay. And with Put that, uh, yeah, I'm keep the flag of. <laughs> yes, I'm a guy indeed. Uh, keep the flag of liberty flying, everyone. Yeah. Grr, grr.